Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness, it's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Hello and welcome to Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio Podcast. I am really excited. I just conducted an interview with a man who I have been tracking down now for a couple of months to get on the show. He is an interesting interview for me because I would say in many areas of medicine we would disagree. He's a very traditional, um, well, traditional is not the right word, conventional uh, medical doctor in most ways. He's written up 700 plus papers for uh, medical journals, including the big ones, uh, the Journal of the American Medicine Association, Medical Association, sorry, Lancet, and so on and so forth. In fact, as he'll discuss during the interview, two of his papers have been the most downloaded papers over the last year and a half of any papers written. And of course, those papers have to do with COVID. COVID being the topic of the day and the topic of yesterday and the topic of tomorrow right now uh, is uh, something that I've tried to give you as much information as I can on. There has been a tremendous amount of censorship when it comes to what I consider to be the truth about COVID, including censorship of this gentleman, Dr. Peter McCullough. Now, Dr. McCullough has undergone a tremendous amount of backlash uh, and heat for the things that he is saying about COVID-19. He has talked outwardly and openly about his disapproval of the idea of vaccinating uh, people for COVID with these experimental vaccines, considering that the vast majority of Americans do not need that, in his opinion, and that the vaccines are not worth the risk based on the 16,000-plus deaths that have already been reported from the vaccines just in America. And he is especially adamant about young uh, children uh, receiving the vaccines, which, of course, is the topic of the day right now uh, as FDA gets ready to approve the Pfizer shots for kids 5 to 11. I couldn't possibly (laughs) be more on board with what he's saying about that. But during this podcast, you'll hear some things that I don't typically talk much about on Vitality Radio. And there's a couple of reasons why I've decided to do this interview. First off, I believe Dr. McCullough 100% speaks from the heart. I believe that he is using his best clinical insight uh, through the years and years as a publishing uh, doctor and a researching doctor as well as a practicing doctor. He talks about the distinction between somebody doing that versus a bureaucrat in Washington such as Dr. Fowler. Fallacy, Dr. Fauci, uh, and what they are saying. There's a big difference between someone with their boots on the ground, so to speak, and someone sitting back in Washington watching all of this play out. But the reason that I decided to have Dr. McCullough on more than anything is because I believe that he is the man to bridge the gap between those that are listening to podcasts watching the news and investigating how they can best protect themselves right now that generally have gone to their doctor for all of the things 
and those of us who generally don't go to the doctor for all of the things uh, that are going on and seek a more natural approach. Because what Dr. McCullough is recommending is 100% logical. It all makes sense. Some of the things that he recommends, uh, most of the things that he recommends are actually pharmaceutical in nature. And generally, that's not the approach that I like to take. But what I love about what he's recommending is they're mostly harmless pharmaceuticals. As pharmaceuticals go, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are very, I don't even know what the word is, but safe, I guess. You know, that's the word that everybody's throwing around, safe and effective. Safe and effective, safe and effective for the vaccine, which we know clinically is not true, uh, neither safe nor very effective. And Dr. McCall and I will talk about that. I can't even talk about this on the radio. On the radio airwaves, they've told me not to discuss this topic. It creates too much heat for the station. So we do this as a podcast-only broadcast, and that's fine because those of you who really want the information will get it. And I appreciate you for tuning in for this one. I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to be very, very useful. But the other thing that I love about this is he'll talk about some preventative measures you can do that are not drug measures. He'll talk about the nutraceutical approach that you can take that I've been recommending for a year and a half. And uh, thanks in large part to the research that he's done, uh, have now proof that these things actually are very effective. And more than anything, he talks about the insanity of medicine in America saying, we can't do anything until you're so sick that you need a hospital. Going to the hospital for COVID is a terrible first line of defense. It isn't a first line of defense once you're at the hospital. It's more of a last line of defense. And he discusses that in detail. So I won't belabor this anymore. We'll get right into the interview. But I wanted to just let you know that Dr. McCullough and I, again, in fact, he'll even talk about how he just got the flu shot a couple of weeks ago, something that I will never do. Uh, And uh, like I say, we won't agree on everything, but I respect this man. This is the type of doctor that we need in America today. And I'm not talking about a guy out there talking about the truth. We need that desperately. But your doctor should be this type of doctor. My doctor is this type of doctor, Dr. Uh, Todd Cameron in Salt Lake City that I go to see. We need doctors who are willing to look beyond the marketing and the propaganda that is coming out of Washington more than ever. And if your doctor is just saying, I can't help you with COVID, go to the hospital if you get really sick, that doctor's not doing a good job of practicing medicine. He simply is not. He is listening to the talking heads, doing as he's told, rather than doing what doctors are supposed to do. In fact, the Hippocratic Oath First, do no harm. I discussed it a couple of weeks ago on Vitality Radio. How is not doing anything not doing harm? It's like a good Samaritan situation, right? It doesn't make any sense. There are so many things that can be done that are now proven against COVID. So many things that are more effective than the vaccine without the harm. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, again, I've not changed my colors at all. (laughs) I still believe this stuff can almost always be handled without pharmaceuticals. But I'm not opposed to somebody using ivermectin. I'm not opposed to somebody using hydroxychloroquine if that's the approach that you want to take. 
I think in many cases it can make a lot of sense, particularly, especially, I will say, if you are in a category of higher risk. The majority of us can sail through this thing, frankly, without even vitamins. We just get better because our immune system does that. But uh, it doesn't not – it makes no sense to do nothing in my view. If you get sick, it makes no sense to do nothing until you're so sick that you have to go to the hospital. Okay, so Vitality Radio podcast, of course, always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition. If you have any questions about anything you hear me and Dr. McCullough discuss today, give us a call, 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662, and we'll be more than happy to help you. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and launch right into this interview with Dr. Peter McCullough. Hello and welcome to Vitality Radio and the Vitality Radio podcast. I am so excited to have you here today. This is a special episode that I've been trying to get together for the last uh, oh, month or so, but uh, with this man's schedule, uh, he is running 90 miles an hour all the time, and I'm just grateful to have him. I've got Dr. Peter McCullough joining us today. Dr. McCullough, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Excellent. Well, it's so good to have you. I appreciate your time. Would you please uh, give us a little bit of background on yourself? Sure. I'm delighted to join your audience. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a board-certified internist and cardiologist, and I'm a trained epidemiologist. I'm in academic practice in Dallas, Texas, and uh, I'm the editor of a major journal and lead on the editorial boards of, of dozens of journals uh, worldwide. I'm a uh, popular author. I've uh, uh, published nearly 700 papers now in the National Library of Medicine, including the top shelf journals. I am uh, a frequent contributor uh, to the overall general medical media. I had an op-ed series last year in the Hill on COVID-19 and then this year on America Out Loud Talk Radio the McCullough Report. So I have dropped everything to help America and help the world with the COVID-19 pandemic is I saw every medical specialist and every primary doctor really needed as all hands on deck in order to best handle the pandemic. It looked like almost every one of us was going to get COVID-19. That meant we need we needed all the doctors and we needed all their attention now. Well, and we greatly appreciate it, especially because you've been willing to look outside of the general box that uh, this is all sort of being lumped into. With COVID-19, as you know, as well as anybody, it seems like there are no, there is no other health news right now. Uh, every ounce of information that's being poured out seems to be related to this virus and this pandemic, and of course, the vaccines for the pandemic. What have you noticed in your research and what have you seen that you believe is being missed in the basic mainstream media reports? The greatest problem is a lack of focus on the most affected groups. So the elderly who are being hospitalized and dying of COVID-19, I can't tell you how many media reports I see on children. There seems to be an mm. enormous focus on children, college kids and elementary school kids, and it's just incessant focus on the children, and yet the people sick in the hospital and dying are the elderly. So we should have always had our focus on the nation's seniors. We should have never taken our focus off that age group. It's a very age-dependent illness. Now, children are going to get four to eight colds a year. COVID-19 is just another one of them, and it doesn't. Children don't deserve a, another media report. Honestly, it's all about the seniors, and what we've understood here 
is that there's a wonderful opportunity in our seniors for early treatment. And a wonderful paper published by Paul Alexander in Medical Hypotheses showed across multiple studies, if any type of multi-drug treatment protocol is started in a nursing home or a domicile facility, it has a 60% reduction in mortality. What I'm telling your listeners is everybody who has a loved one in a nursing home or senior home better make some calls and make sure they're ready to treat COVID-19 with a medicinal approach and not just have people sent to the hospital. Being sent to the hospital is not the answer to COVID-19. It's early treatment and avoiding the hospital altogether. You know, the complaints we hear about doctors and ICU directors is that the hospitals are burdened or they're overloaded with these patients. Well, I'm here to tell you the hospitalization for COVID-19 is avoidable if patients go with early treatment and the families press for early treatment and they get proper care. Any idea why nobody is talking about early treatment, at least in the mainstream? Obviously, there's you and quite a few other doctors who have stood up and said, hey, wait a minute, we're missing an opportunity here. Why is that not being talked about? Well, I can tell you, I published the first treatment protocol for the world in the American Journal of Medicine, August of 2020, the most frequently downloaded paper from that major medical journal to this day. I published the second update in reviews in cardiovascular medicine in December of 2020, the most frequently downloaded and utilized paper that day. The uh, Association of American Physicians and Surgeons had the first COVID treatment guide. We have data suggesting that's been downloaded and passed around millions and millions of times. Uh, we had data last year that there was a massive surge in the use of hydroxychloroquine. This year, we've had data showing a massive surge in the use of ivermectin. We've had a giant uptick in the use of monoclonal antibodies. So I think despite the silence of our public health officials on multi-drug protocols from COVID-19, Americans have gotten the message. And it's clear right now, almost every crowd that I talk to, I ask for a show of hands, who's had COVID-19, who knew about early treatment? And the proxy here is that now Americans know and they need to demand treatment. I encourage everybody to call their doctors. If they haven't had COVID-19, uh, whether you've been vaccinated or not, but you haven't had the illness, you, you don't have natural immunity, call your doctor and ask the question, do you treat COVID-19? Do you know where the antibody centers are? Do you know how to refer me, get me an antibody infusion? Do you know how to prescribe the other drugs? And if you don't, then, then refer me to somebody who will, because this is such a common problem. Uh, as so many people go on the scramble, they get COVID-19 and they actually don't know what to do. They don't have any instruction booklet. They don't get any instructions from the testing center. Their doctors aren't ready. The patients aren't ready. This type of scramble is leading to lost lives. I mean, come on, COVID-19 has been around for a year and a half now. Everybody should know COVID-19 could come knocking at your house and you need to be ready. Well, that's the thing that's so frustrating for uh, someone like myself who's reporting on this on a weekly basis and talking about it is that, you know, early on when this was going on, there was a lot of mystery, right? I mean, we didn't know where this thing came from, what it was, how it was related to anything else, what you could do for it. But it didn't, doesn't take long when hundreds of thousands and then millions of people are getting this to start to have some evidence as to what might help. And it doesn't, so, take, long, it doesn't take long to start looking around the world and asking what's going on. Just I'm in Texas, just south of us in Mexico. They were getting blasted with COVID-19. I talked to colleagues. They had 1,200 bed hospitals in Mexico City, all filled with COVID-19. They cleared out their hospitals because they got to an ivermectin-based multidrug protocol. Very successful. They literally handled COVID within a matter of a few months. Same thing with multiple countries in South America. And then recently in India with the Delta curve, it was well publicized that drug therapy won the day and crushed their Delta outbreak. 
Uh, now you could look over to Japan, a country equally as sophisticated as the United States. They have frontline ivermectin-based treatment protocols that they use outpatient extend into the hospital. Uh, Eric Grimaldi, one of my colleagues in Italy, has led treatment domiciliary COVID-19 in Italy, and they have had rallies where they've announced zero COVID hospitalizations in major cities in Italy because of a hydroxychloroquine-based multidrug approach. So it does, it's not hard. You know, you, the, the internet can't hide all this. Americans know, and people in the world know, COVID-19 is treatable. No single drug is necessary nor sufficient, but drugs are used in combination approaches to treat the illness and reduce hospitalization and death. Why do you think all doctors aren't doing this in America, the early think, treatment? You know, I was on Tucker Carlson's show about uh, six months ago, and I told Tucker at that point in time, I think it was mainly fear-driven. I think doctors were afraid of treating uh, because they were afraid of contracting the illness themselves. They were afraid of using their clinical judgment ahead of large randomized trials or guidelines. You know, randomized trials and guidelines, you know, are going to be five to 10 years away. Uh, we're not going to have that intellectual support. This was a time for real doctors to use their decision-making, their ability to rapidly interpret the literature. Many of the papers are in preprint, so we actually have to analyze the data ourselves and, and make decisions. This was a time for the master clinician, the master do doctor. And sadly, many of our colleagues just didn't meet the grade. They, they, they hid in the shadows. Uh, they didn't step out to treat COVID-19. They really falsely told their patients there was no treatment for COVID-19. We know the urgent care centers really let us down. Do you know that the majority of people go to urgent care center? They get a, they get a test report saying COVID-19 and they get told to, to go at home and do nothing. Can you imagine? Yeah. They don't get a set of prescriptions. They don't get the, I mean, I mean, if they went in and had a strep throat, they'd get some, they'd get some prescriptions. Or if they had pneumococcal pneumonia, or if they had diverticulitis or urine tract, they would get prescriptions for any other illness. But suddenly in COVID-19, the fatal illness, they get nothing. Yeah. So then the, it's interesting too, because this seems to be not exclusively, but to a large degree, an American problem. Uh, you know, as you mentioned in South and Central America, uh, Mexico, Italy, some other places in the country, they're treating this Japan, you said as well with ivermectin, with hydroxychloroquine, these things are being demonized here. Joe Rogan goes on ivermectin and they start telling him that he's using horse dewormer. What's going on in America that's so backwards when it comes to COVID-19? Well, I would say America is in a block with some other countries. Uh, so I'd say America, Canada, uh, mm -hmm. Northern EU, the UK, South Africa, and Australia and New Zealand. They're in a block where the approach is to suppress any hope of early treatment, suppress every single aspect of early treatment, promote as much fear, suffering, isolation, hospitalization, and death as possible, and absolutely overpromote, railroad, and mandate enforce vaccines into every living human being. That seems to be the approach of that block. Other countries take just the opposite. They are just freewheeling with these drugs. In the paper that I published in Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine in December 2020, Dr. Salit Roas, one of the authors, produced a table. She did a wonderful job. They had 30 countries that had treatment kits. So, you know, just south of us, of Texas and Salvador and across Central America, they're passing out treatment kits in seniors who get COVID-19. They pass them out in little, in little plastic bags. And they have combinations of ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, aspirin, prednisone. And if you start early, you don't need that many drugs. It's amazing, the differential. Do you know in Russia, they first line use favipiravir. In fact, it's approved by the Russian regulatory agency 
as an early treatment for COVID-19. It's very similar to uh, the Merck drug that's going to come forward, Milpinavir. Um, okay. And it's, it's not terribly effective, but it's 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 can be in combination. The, the point I'm making is that there is such a variation in response to early treatment. That's a red flag. So anytime there's variation in response, it's a red flag. Do you know among physicians? So we have the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. They strongly support early treatment. They have got protocols. They have networks. They have listing of treatment doctors, participating pharmacies. You know, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium has that. American Frontline Doctors, Truth for Health Foundation. And do you know other organizations have nothing? Do you know the Infectious Disease Society of America has nothing on outpatient treatment? American College of Physicians, nothing. American Medical Association, nothing. American College of Pediatrics, nothing. So some of our medical organizations are literally out to lunch on COVID-19, the biggest medical problem of our time. And then other organizations are all in and they're treating patients. So we have a, a lack of unity among our medical organizations. I'm just grateful that any of the medical organizations are doing something because it seemed like it was just silence from them uh, for the longest time. And now it's it's exciting to me that people like yourself are uh, jumping out and saying, hey, I'm a I'm a real doctor who a real clinician who's been doing this and publishing hundreds of studies. I know what I'm doing and this is being done wrong and or not being done at all in terms of the uh, early treatment. And thank goodness that somebody like yourself is willing to actually step up and say something. Well, you pointed out an important concept and I actually didn't realize this. Um, I've worked with some wonderful people in the media. And uh, when I uh, went on set with Tucker Carlson, he started getting worked up when I was trying to explain this. And one time he just looked up at the monitor and said, listen, if you don't know who this doctor is, you better look him up. This Dr. Peter McCullough, he has authority. And you know what? He made an important point. The treating doctor, the academic doctor who's publishing and treating and managing, that doctor has authority. That is far greater than the CDC, the FDA, and the NIH. Those are public health agencies that serve the doctor and serve the patient. They work for us. They're public servants. The FDA manages advertising labels for drug and drug safety. Mm -hmm. The uh, CDC manages outbreak data and the NIH funds research. None of them are anywhere close to the collective competencies to tell doctors what to do or to tell Americans what to do on anything. They are support agencies. It's the doctor and the patient that sits in the fiduciary relationship that has the liability relationship to one another. And importantly, the doctor and the patient participate in a very important activity that is a cornerstone of medicine. It's called share decision-making. We share in the decision-making of what's going on. And when doctors tell patients no, there's, there's no treatment, that's not a shared decision-making. And when doc, in the hospital, when doctor says, we're giving you remdesivir and you don't have any options on this, that's not shared decision-making. So I have to tell you, every single doctor that's railroading their patient into no treatment or railroading them into nihilistic or minimalistic or inappropriate treatment in the hospital, those doctors are going to have a day of reckoning. It's wrong. And, and patients should listen to this, should use the word shared decision-making. They should use another important word. It's called autonomy. Do you know that the individual patient, the individual person has supreme autonomy on what happens to their body? They cannot have any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal, whether to receive or not receive. If a patient says, I have COVID-19 and I demand treatment, do you know what? They have the autonomy to demand treatment and they can't be denied. 
Yeah, that's and that's important. I think one of the things that we are losing sight of right now, especially with the mandates coming down, is that we actually do have rights when it comes to our health and our health care and where we seek it and how we seek it and what we do with it. And people do need to recognize that their doctor can be essentially fired and people can find a doctor who will treat them for something like COVID-19. As you said, I think it's a, a wonderful idea for everybody to reach out to their doctor and just ask them, hey, if I get COVID-19, what are you going to do about it? And if the answer isn't satisfactory, go find someone who will uh, help you with that. Absolutely. So you've mentioned, and I want to talk a little bit more about early treatment, but then I want to jump into the vaccines and, and the, the concerns that people have there. With the early treatment, you've mentioned multi-drug therapies. I think there's a lot of, con well, I know there's a lot of confusion because people are asking me at Vitality on a regular basis, okay, what do I do if I get this stuff? And ivermectin and, and uh, hydroxychloroquine, of course, are the two big drugs that most people have at least heard of. First off, are in your recommendations, are you recommending either or or both with those two drugs? I'd say the most important new news that everybody needs to get on board with is oral and nasal hygiene. This is so important. We now know that the virus sits in the nose and mouth, especially the Delta variant, which is 99% of what we have now, in very high viral loads for about three to five days before it invades the body. Using hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin is at the point where the virus invades the body. You have three to five days to zap the virus in the nose and the mouth. How do you do it? Use betadine or povidone iodine. This is the brown liquid that they use to sterilize wounds in the hospital. Get a bottle of it for $10 and take two teaspoons and six ounces of water and gargle it, swish it around in your mouth and spit it out. Don't swallow. And then get a nasal sprayer, spray it up the nose and snort it out and do it twice a day on days you leave the house. That is the best way to zap the virus if you've come in contact with it. If someone comes into your house and they've got COVID, then it, that's called post-exposure prophylaxis go ahead and use it four times a day. And in a randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues from Bangladesh, he showed that if you actually increase it to every four hours, once somebody starts having COVID-19 in the earliest phases, when you test positive, blast it with povidone iodine, you can abort the illness 75% of the time. You literally don't develop systemic COVID-19. That is probably the biggest news. It's supported by another half a dozen studies showing that the virus is easily killed. Just like the virus is killed by hand sanitizer, by any different type of hand sanitizer, mm -hmm. it, it, it's killed. The, the thing is, it's not a hand infection. Everyone's been doing <laughs> the hand sanitizer. It's an infection in the nose and the mouth. Don't let it bake in the nose of your mouth. Get some hygiene there. If uh, if a woman's pregnant or if there's thyroid problems, we can skip the iodine. We can use a dilute hydrogen peroxide. Uh, believe it or not, even uh, dilute sodium hypochlorite, which is uh, bleach, which is uh, supported by the American Dental Association is fine. We don't recommend bleach because people can splash it around and, and what have you. But um, very importantly, critical that we uh, end up having some oral nasal hygiene. I mean, I can't emphasize this enough. Uh, that ought to be the base. Now, there's another base thing that can be done, and that's nutraceuticals. Turns out that deficiencies, the virus hunts people who are deficient in zinc, in vitamin D, vitamin C, even in polyphenol supplement, quercetin. So we recommend that as a base. You can go to the Truth for Health Org, uh, Foundation and get the home treatment guide and read about that base. Everybody needs to build this. Let's talk about zinc. Who gets deficient in zinc? Older people who are on diuretics, they actually lose zinc out of the body. So you need to re replace some zinc. How about vitamin D? Who's deficient? Me and you and everybody else who spends all their time inside. 
we actually need to take supplemental vitamin D. And a recent analysis shows that if we achieve vitamin D levels of 50 in the bloodstream, there's almost 0% mortality with COVID-19. It's almost therapeutic protection against COVID-19. And then vitamin C and vitamin uh, and quercetin with uh, lesser supportive data, that's a base. So after we do that, um, uh, in high-risk seniors, Regeneron monoclonal antibody infusion, get it on day one or two, demand it, know what center you're going to go to, one-hour infusion, one-hour observation, go home. There's even now a new subcutaneous method of administration. Get some shots in the thigh or the love handle area and get out of there. You're good. Listen, former President Trump got it. Joe Rogan got it. Governor Abbott, you know, vaccine failed him. He got the antibody infusion. Wonderful. He's good. Uh, I can tell you, I, I, the antibody infusions are wonderful drugs. We, we can, it makes the condition so much easier to treat. Uh, I've had a few people get really sick, some with heart failure and lung disease. They've been hospitalized anyway, but you know what? I've never had somebody go on the ventilator and heaven forbid, I've never lost anybody that can get a monoclonal antibody infusion. It's that important. Hmm. People over 65, no question about it, get it. People over 50, additional medical problems, we ought to strongly consider it. Occasionally, I've, I've had some younger people do that. Now, if we can't get monoclonal antibody infusion, then we use the oral intracellular anti-infectives, hydroxychloroquine, supported by 250 studies, ivermectin supported by over 60 studies. Uh, either one of those combined with doxycycline or azithromycin to cover some bacteria, uh, we run those drugs. Then we go into the layer of anti-inflammatories. We use inhaled budesonide, palmocort inhaler or nebulizer, reduces hospitalization by 80%, shown in two randomized trials. We use oral prednisone, uh, shown to reduce mortality by about 30%. We use oral colchicine, reduces hospitalization by about 25%. Everybody should be on full-dose aspirin, 325 milligrams a day, and then high-risk seniors, those with heart and lung disease, prior cancer, immobility, we use blood thinners. Now, when the oxygen saturation goes down, that's actually blood clots in the lungs. That's very important. People need to understand this. Low oxygen saturation ought to mean full-dose aspirin and full-dose blood thinners. And if I do it ahead of time, and I have saved so many people from having a low oxygen level. The biggest mistake I see is they have a low oxygen level. They say, well, I need to go to the hospital and get remdesivir. So no, remdesivir is treating the viral replication that was going on two weeks ago. The problem is now micro blood clots. Treat the micro blood clots. So that's called sequence multidrug therapy. It's actually now been cooperated. Um, Dr. Ben Marble of myfreedoctor.com, not under my uh, impetus, but under his own um, desire, he actually named it the McCullough Protocol. It's copyrighted. And this protocol, we believe, has saved tens of millions of lives because it's directly treating patients with COVID-19. Think about it. You know, when vaccines are given to the majority of people who take a vaccine are never going to come in contact with COVID. The vast majority of people wearing masks are never going to even be challenged with COVID. But every person who gets COVID, who gets early treatment, that's where all the impact is. And that's the reason why uh, early treatment, the early treatment movement in the world, in the United States, is probably the most significant development in COVID-19. Well, and I love what you said about the, uh, you know, the, the nutraceutical side in terms of prevention, because what a lot of people are coming to me asking about is, what do I do to, to prevent getting sick in the first place? And trying to figure that out. And, and then I love that you've got it, you know, basically staged at, out based on where somebody is with the illness or even just the prevention of the illness. And I just barely read about uh, cleansing the sinuses and the mouth. And so I'm really, really glad that you brought that up because that's something that, like you said, is kind of breaking right now and, and something most people have not heard yet, I don't think. 
You know, Jared, I'll send you over a link to a video that a New York dentist made that I share with all the patients. If you can post this, it just shows them how to make the solution and how to do yeah, it. Properly. I'd love to have that. I'll definitely don't share. follow it. One pointer is if, if uh, you know if it's not diluted enough because it'll sting. If it stings, it means you haven't diluted it enough. Okay. And it doesn't take much to kill the virus, but this is such an important advance that uh, initially it starts out, people think they have hay fever. Uh, I had it. I, I literally felt it in my nose and my mouth. And this was a long time ago. And I didn't know about this. But if I would have just blasted it in the nose and mouth, I probably I pretty much could have stopped the virus from getting into my lungs. And once it got into my lungs, that's when this whole thing happens. And so I can tell you this idea of zapping it early in the nose and mouth is the biggest advance so far. And then we will certainly need the other drugs. But I don't want anybody to sit with tons of COVID up in their nose and their sinuses without blasting it with something. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. So let's talk about that. It seems to me, well, it doesn't seem to me, it's obvious to me that in America, at least, and like you said, pretty much in all those countries that you mentioned that are kind of in that same block, that this is essentially, there, there's two things they're talking about. You've got to get vaccinated. And now you probably need to get a booster and you've got to wear masks even if you've been vaccinated. And if you get sick, you got to stay home and quarantine and do nothing until you get really sick and then you need to go to the hospital. So let's talk about the vaccine side of this thing. First off, it's an interesting thing. There's a lot of people that I've been talking to about this say that these vaccines aren't really vaccines in the traditional sense. How would you define the mRNA vaccines versus what we've seen prior to this? Let me say that, you know, the CDC and the FDA hold all the data. And my expectation as a doctor and as a citizen, monthly report card. We should have had a monthly report card starting in February. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Nothing. Not a single government report. Not a single government press briefing. American in terms of in terms of vaccine anything, effectiveness or anything. Americans have been told now for the entire program, take the vaccine. Don't ask any questions. Right. Where's the report card? You know, we get report cards on everything. We get report cards on every medicine. We get report cards on every governmental process. We get report cards on everything. You know, we get report cards on automobile safety for crying out loud. Where's the, <laughs> where is the report card on the vaccines? We have three products, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J. &J. I can tell you as a doctor, they can't be the same. They cannot be identical in terms of efficacy and safety. It's impossible. Moderna right. is 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. Pfizer in the adult dose is 30 micrograms of messenger RNA. Pfizer in the small children dose is 10 micrograms of messenger RNA. Johnson & Johnson is adenoviral DNA. It's, an, it's a replication incompetent adenovirus. Wait a minute. We've got three products, very different doses, and then one with a very different mechanism of action. They must be different in terms of safety and efficacy. And the CDC has all the data. They have all the data. So let's take efficacy. When the vaccines came out of the clinical trials with the extinct versions of the virus, that was the wild type alpha, beta, and a little bit of gamma, they looked pretty good. About 90% vaccine efficacy for Pfizer and Moderna, 70% for J&J. &J. Now, our government treated them as if they're all the same, but still 90 and 70, that's a big difference, but they still treat them all the same. Okay. Right. They looked all right. Now, as we go through the program, there has been one paper that's come out by the CDC and uh, that paper 
And I can uh, quote it if I can uh, um, get to it here. That paper um, uh, came out and uh, gave Americans some information on differential efficacy on preventing hospitalization and death. And this is important because out of, when and the randomized trials, they picked such a healthy population, hardly anybody even got challenged with COVID-19. Do you know in the randomized trials that, that actually got them onto the market, there was less than a 1% COVID rate, even in the placebo group. So uh, we knew from the clinical trials that the vaccines were basically unchallenged, that most of the people who took the vaccine basically were never challenged with COVID. They actually never had COVID. So, so, um, so, you know, that was the first uh, 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 observation. But what we learned, and there was a reassuring paper, uh, just to let Americans know about that. And uh, let me pull that up for you. There was a reassuring paper that was published in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, September 17th, 2021. So that was just last month, but that was the first data that we had on protection against hospitalization and death. Now, in that paper, I'm reading from table two. So I'm just giving you the data. Uh, and this is reassuring. Moderna had 92% protection uh, against uh, hospitalization, very importantly. Pfizer had 77% protection after hospitalization. This is after 120 days, so it looked pretty good. Johnson & Johnson had 68% protection against hospitalization. So that looked pretty solid. What's the caveat? Uh, and this is in the text of the paper. It says uh, uh, the, the product-specific vaccine efficacy by the variant, including the Delta variant uh, in the AY lineages, which is actually the more resistant form of Delta, was not evaluated. And so the point is, they actually don't have evidence with Delta that the vaccines protect against hospitalizations. Now, we look back in MMWR in July 30th of 2021, paper by Brown and colleagues, an outbreak in Barnstable County, Massachusetts, 70% of those who had in this outbreak with Delta were fully vaccinated. We have Delta-specific data from the Mayo Clinic with Purinac and colleagues, 25,589 individuals with COVID-19. They had data on hospitalization. They calculated protection from Moderna, not 90%, but 76%, and now for Pfizer, 42% protection. And then we go to Israel, which is ahead of the United States. Israel has uh, 86% of all the COVID in adults that they have are fully vaccinated. In fact, they have 2 million people in Israel that have gotten a booster so far. So we have data now that the vaccines are failing with Delta. And uh, in fact, Pfizer is below all levels of even qualifying as a vaccine. If a vaccine isn't 50% protective and can't last a year, it's, it's no good as a vaccine. We should drop it. Wow. Yeah, and it's interesting that now we, we actually have some data, thank goodness. But as you said, we haven't been getting that for, for this whole time. And then it, it uh, you also stated, I think it's a really important thing. Most people, uh, by my experience, that have gone to get the vaccine, they just get the one that is available wherever they go. Right. So it could be Pfizer, could be J and J, could be Moderna. Maybe they can specifically say, hey, I want to do the J and J. So I only have to do it once or I want to do the Pfizer because I heard that one's better or whatever it is. But generally speaking, people are just getting the vaccine that they get wherever it is that they go without any uh, information as to which one's more effective or better for them or any of that. 
You know, that's so anti-Americans, right? Americans are the ultimate <laughs> consumers. Americans want to shop. They always yeah. want to have the best thing. You know, it's either Coach or Gucci. You know, it's either um, it's either Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. You know, it, people always want to make of a choice. So why is our government not giving Americans the data so they can make a choice? I gave it, I did the best I could from CDC publications that are coming pretty late in the program on efficacy. And it's it's not reassuring. It looks like FSC is failing against the Delta variant. What about safety? Safety is the biggest thing. Right. If, if my at, biggest concern. Yeah. If at least, if there's going to be a program, it's going to be a government program, and we're going to offer something to every American, it better be safe. Period. Right. Period. No, no full stop. It should be safe. Under all criteria that's applied, it should be safe and it should be safety tested. If we were going to ask everybody in America to get under our roof, we better safety test that roof to make sure the roof isn't going to collapse. If we're going to ask every American to uh, drive an automobile, it better be safe and it better be safety tested. Let me ask you, let me tell you this much. If there's going to be a needle going in a single arm of an American, the substance injected in that needle better be safe. Otherwise, there, there's going to be hell to pay if it's not. I mean hell with a capital H. I can't emphasize this enough, hell to pay, because this is an extraordinary situation where Americans initially were offered a vaccine under their free will. In fact, the consent form is research. It says either investigational research. So Americans are off being offered the opportunity to be in research. but then there was a continued kind of encroachment to said, well, now you really should get it. And the messaging got stronger and stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. And then it's at a point saying, listen, this isn't optional research anymore. Now you have to take it. You have to take it because in order to keep your employment or go to school or, or keep your insurance, and it just keeps going and going. Wait a minute, it, it's elective research. You know, there's only one time I can think of in my lifetime where people were forced to go into research a couple of times. One is in Nazi research. Mm -hmm. They were forced into it. The other one is called the Tus Tuskegee experiments. Right. These are some really dark times in history. And now in 2021, Americans and people in the world, just like Nazi research and just like Tuskegee are being forced into research. And I think historians are gonna write about this. Wait a minute, how did things get so far where United Airlines is forcing their employees to do research. The US military is forcing them into research with products that on their face value are still in research. Right. Okay, on their face value, there's still yet to be a full package insert. Do you know there's no package insert that gives the full safety information of the products? Do you know the FDA still has not reviewed the VAERS data on safety. They have still not had a formal meeting to review VAERS data. I was just going to actually ask you about that. So I'm glad you brought it up. What What is the VAERS data showing and why does that matter to people who aren't very familiar with that system? Well, VAERS is Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And Americans now have really become very familiar with VAERS. VAERS is a, a system where people report into of the CDC. They do it on the website, they do it by PDF, or they do it by phone, and uh, they report reactions or problems 
that have occurred after the uh, COVID-19 vaccines and all vaccines. So let's take before COVID, what do we know about fares? Uh, uh, what we knew is that about 16,000 safety reports would be generated with about 278 million uh, injections across 70 vaccines, and that not necessarily related to the injection of the substance, but just you know reported in the database, uh, let's say 30 days or so after the vaccine, would be death. And we know across a massive number of people, 278 shots, 278 million shots, you know, far more than what's been given for COVID-19 so far, that there would be on average 150 deaths per year. And this has gone on from the 1990s. Okay. You know, so, uh, some years, let's say we have all the kids take the meningococcal vaccine before they go to college. Some years, there's zero deaths with meningococcal. I mean, that would be our expectation, right? Our kids are going to go to college. We are not going to tolerate a single kid being killed by the meningococcal vaccine. That's the U.S. standards. I just took a flu. I just took a flu shot uh, two weeks ago. My expectation is I'm not going to die from the flu shot. I honestly, I took the flu shot. That was my sincere expectation that I am not going to die from the flu shot. Well, let me tell you, January 22nd, with the COVID-19 vaccines, we are we had just vaccinated only 27 million Americans. We already had 182 deaths. We were already past the 150. We passed the limit early in January of excess death. And if we had proper safety mechanisms in place, we would have shut down the program. If we would have had a data safety monitor board, uh, clinical event committee, and human ethics committee overseeing the FDA and CDC, the FDA and CDC are the sponsors. So they can't make determinations on death and they can't make determinations on stopping or or, uh, continuing. They need an external panel to tell them that's unbiased. They don't have it. So nobody told the CDC and FDA to stop. The CDC and FDA didn't report this to America and they just continued. And now the vaccine program, as of October 1st, 2021, your listeners will be shocked. 16,310 people have lost their lives after Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J. We have over 250,000 that have been hospitalized, gone to urgent care visits, or seen in the office visits for injuries. We have 9,446 people whose face is paralyzed on one side, Bell's palsy. We have 6812 people who have had myocarditis or heart inflammation. We know from a paper by Hogan Collins, 86% of those people were hospitalized because of the heart damage. We have 20,789 Americans now that are permanently disabled after the COVID-19 vaccines. All the action occurs within the first few days of the shot is very temporally related to the shot. 86% of the time, there's no other explanation as shown by analysis by McLaughlin and colleagues. These numbers are catastrophic. These numbers are actually worse than COVID-19, the illness. They're worse. And the reason why they're worse is because people who take the vaccine, the expectation is that they should be protected, that they shouldn't be harmed. And analysis by Kostoff and colleagues has found, has been published now. So actually, the, the FDA heard this on September 17th at their meeting. They heard the analysis by Kostoff. You're more likely to die with the COVID-19 vaccine at all age groups than you are taking your chances of getting COVID and dying with COVID. And that doesn't even factor in early treatment because most people aren't going to run into COVID. When you take the vaccine, 100% chance it's in your body, then the risk uh, starts to percolate hour by hour after you take the vaccine. A paper by Tracy Hogue, University of California Davis, you're more likely to be hospitalized 
with myocarditis as a young person than be hospitalized with COVID. So why would a parent ever take their child in to take a vaccine that's going to put them in the hospital with myocarditis as opposed to getting COVID, which is like a cold, which we could treat with a little budesonide and prednisone and azithromycin if we needed to in children. The only people getting hospitalized with COVID are those who aren't getting early treatment. And as we've already covered, it's an eminently treatable illness. So we have a situation where the vaccines are looking really bad right now. They don't work against Delta variant. Uh, they may not work at all. The Israeli data suggests they don't work at all. I, I'd like to think that there's some residual benefit of getting the vaccine. It's my clinical impression that patients who have taken the vaccine in my practice, they seem to be easier to manage when they get COVID-19. I've had now several who are fully vaccinated and they've taken the booster and they still get COVID-19. Right. And so that should tell you the vaccines don't cover Delta. My patients have been completely surprised. I said, I took, even took the booster. I said, well, it doesn't cover, it doesn't cover the current strain. The vaccines, in a sense, are obsolete. They, they, they should have been like the flu shot. Flu shot, they keep changing the flu shot to cover the new strains. Here, the vaccine manufacturers just kept the vaccines the same. So when they said the booster, I'll never forget on CNBC, uh, in the morning, Joe Kernan was asking Scott Gottlieb, who's the former chairman of the FDA. Now he's in heavy conflict of interest because he's on the Pfizer board. So he has no business. He has no business telling Americans uh, about, about vaccines because he has a conflict of interest. He's on the board of Pfizer, right? So he's financially interested in promoting vaccines. But even Joe Kernan asked him, he goes, uh, listen, the, the vaccines look like they don't cover Delta. Uh, have you changed the vaccine to cover the new strain? And Scott Gottlieb goes, well, no, we haven't. So Joe goes, is the booster just giving more of the same thing? And Gottlieb said, yes. And Joe kind of looked at him and says, is that going to work? <laughs> you know, any American would understand if you give a booster to something that's not covering the problem, it's not going to work. Yeah, it's it. it the, I, I keep telling people that logic, I feel like, was suspended back in March of 2020. When it comes to uh, medicine, it seems like everybody is just turning a blind eye to what is so obvious in, in so many ways. So with the vaccines, you know, you asked a, a rhetorical question, but I'm going to answer it because I think that it it's something that needs to be discussed. And that is why would any parent subject their child to something that's more dangerous than the illness it's supposed to prevent? And I think the answer is safe and effective in quotes, safe and effective, safe and effective. We hear it over and over and over again. And I want to know, where is the evidence of safety? We have a lot of evidence that it's not safe. Is there any really good, solid evidence that it's safe for most people who take it? Now, there's never been uh, an analysis that it's safe. The FDA has not considered any of the VAERS data. So even at the uh, meeting for approval of Carmenati, and for the booster meeting, and then the meetings that are going on today and tomorrow, they will only look at the registrational trial data. So in the registrational trials, the randomized trials where they had data safety monitors, where they had strict inclusion exclusion, and where they only really recruited healthy people, they look right. pretty safe. But as soon as we start recruiting people with medical problems, here we go. It makes sense, right? So uh, what if uh, the vaccines uh, have injury patterns in susceptible people? So Jennifer Rose has published in the American Journal of Public Health Policy and Law that there are four major organs that are damaged by the vaccines. One is the brain. So you can imagine, what if somebody has multiple sclerosis, they've had a prior stroke, they have Alzheimer's, right. and they get vaccine brain injury damage. It's going to be worse. 
I've seen a, a person in my practice who already had a spinal cord injury. Well, now it's worse after the vaccine. What about prior Guillain-Barre syndrome or other peripheral paralysis uh, syndrome? It's going to be worse. What about blood clotting, the hematologic system? People with blood clotting, they've already had blood clots. Oh my Lord, can you imagine taking a vaccine? All the vaccines promote blood clotting because they trick the body into producing the spike protein and the spike protein circulates for two weeks promoting blood clotting in the body. You can't imagine what a risk that is with somebody who's had previously had a blood clot, okay? I mean, these things should be common sense to anybody thinking about them. What about heart problems? People who already have heart failure, people with cardiomyopathies, they've already had myocarditis or pericarditis, or they have valve disease, or they've had arrhythmias. I mean, you know, the heart is a very delicate, sensitive organ that we have to rely on heartbeat after heartbeat for our entire age. How could we possibly ever take it as substance in our body, which the FDA is telling us causes heart damage? How could anybody do that? How could anybody do that? And so what we've heard is these really terrible things. We heard from our agencies back in June that it's rare, that they took, they had 200 cases in June. And the CDC and FDA looked at it and they declared rare because they divided it by everybody who took the vaccine. Well, unless we check everybody with an EKG and blood tests and echoes, we don't know who's had myocarditis and isn't. And I told, I was on national TV at that time. I said, I wouldn't use the word rare. That is a very, very dangerous thing. These public health officials who work for us are not performing. They are doing dangerous and reckless work. And they said it's rare. And you know where we are today? I already read you the numbers. October 1st, we're at over 6,800 cases of myocarditis. Those doctors who said rare, who said rare back in June, they should be hauled into accountability. It's wrong. It is so wrong. I'll tell you another thing they're saying. It's mild. Oh, don't worry about it, parents. It's mild. Wait a minute. The Tracy Hogue paper says 86% of the kids are hospitalized. Do you know what it takes to hospitalize an 18-year-old kid? You gotta be pretty sick. Let me tell you what, it's not mild. It's not rare, it's not mild. I'm a cardiologist, I'm an expert in my field. I am telling America, it's not mild or rare. And the FDA is telling you, don't give the vaccines because they cause myocarditis. I mean, these warnings are so clear. Myocarditis with Pfizer, Moderna, blood clots with with, um, J&J, and also Guillain-Barre or neurologic injury with J&J. These warnings ought to be so clear to Americans to to really um, steer clear of the vaccines. The reason why they're taking the vaccines, I think is not because of lack of information on safety. I think they know the vaccines are unsafe. What they're doing is they're doing it because they have to. It's social pressure. They're being pressured by their employer. They're being pressured by work. They're being pressured by family members. They're taking the vaccines very reluctantly. Then they're being injured. I mean, we just have the most awful time in America right now. The day these vaccines are pulled off the market and the day the vaccine program is shut down will be a national holiday. It'll be a national holiday. Yeah. Well, and the pressure is coming from all over, too. I mean, you mentioned some, but even people are being pressured by their religion, their religious leaders to take it. I mean, this thing is it's gone ballistic in terms of the pressure. It's it's almost hard to imagine. And then people like yourself are being silenced or as much as they can, right? There's all this censorship. Anybody that says, hey, wait a minute, maybe the vaccine's not safe and effective. It's like, oh my gosh, you can't say that. And they shut you down because they don't want anybody having any more vaccine hesitancy than they already have. And yet here you are, Dr. McCullough, someone who 
is fully on board with vaccination, who just got the flu shot a couple of weeks ago. It's not vaccines in your book. It's these vaccines. Is that an accurate statement? Absolutely. I can tell you that 98% of Americans take all their vaccines. I would venture to say 99% of doctors like myself take all the vaccines. I've taken every one of them. I'm a cardiologist. I could get a needle stick in the hospital, hepatitis B. I take my hepatitis B vaccine. I uh, could get exposed to a senior, get blasted with influenza. I took a flu shot. I don't have any problem with that. I've been to India a couple of times. I've taken all my shots. I have no problem taking vaccines, but I have to tell you, if you tell me that there's a vaccine and it's already been associated with 16,000 deaths and 20,000 people disabled and 750,000 safety reports, I have to tell you what, you know what? I would start to look at that vaccine or those vaccines and I'd start asking some serious questions. Like, really, should they still be on the market? That sounds right. like that sounds like a bunch of roofs that keep collapsing, a bunch of bridges that keep collapsing, and they keep building them, and nobody safety tests. Cars are recalled for a whole lot less <laughs> uh, problems than uh, these vaccines are causing. And then on top of that, like even if if you wanted to paint the rosiest picture of the vaccine, then you would say, okay, well maybe it's not that safe, and some of us are going to you know kind of take one for the team by getting vaccinated. There's two other big things that I concern myself with. One is, and we've already discussed this, it's also probably not that effective, especially now where Delta is almost 100% of what's going on. But beyond that, because that is one of the things also that's this social pressure. Well, if you're not doing it, you know, we're all in this together. You got to, you know, you got to do your part. It's this whole concept of herd immunity. Do you mind addressing that for a minute with COVID? The only path for herd immunity is natural immunity. Once somebody's had the virus, they're done. They can't get it again. They don't even carry it in their nose and mouth anymore. You're done. And even if someone's naturally immune, they get exposed to the virus. They zap it right away in the nose and mouth. It's happened to me. I'm, I'm naturally immune. I had the alpha variant. I was in research. I had sequence. I've been blasted with Delta right in my face. I can't get it. Can't get it because I have, I have sterilized immunity. The vaccines don't sterilize it. The vaccines allow Delta to grow in the nose and mouth. And we know from a paper by Rimerisma from Wisconsin and from Acharya from uh, California, showing that the vaccinated are definitely loaded with the virus in the pre-symptomatic phase. They're loaded, high viral loads. And this idea that a vaccinated person is gonna protect somebody is crazy. Now, the good news is that the only way to spread the virus is with symptoms. So a vaccinated person can have the virus as long as they don't have any symptoms, they're not, they're not gonna spread it to anybody else. But the minute they develop nasal congestion, fever, what have you, they got to get away from everybody else because that vaccinated person is a real public health hazard. And they're every bit as much of a public health hazard as a symptomatic unvaccinated person. So mass vaccination is essentially a super spreader event. It can be. I mean, now that we have the majority of people vaccinated, it's going to be the majority of cases with COVID. It's pretty clear. And so, you know, it's now the majority of people in my practice who are getting COVID are vaccinated. That's true all over the country. And it's certainly true in Israel, where pretty much everybody's got COVID, because the vaccines basically don't sterilize people. It's not like the polio vaccine or something where it just zaps the virus. These vaccines aren't well designed enough in order to sterilize the virus. It's called non-sterilizing immunity. The only hope for the vaccines is they could take a little edge off the viral infection and not have so many people get seriously ill in the hospital. I'm hopeful 
that those data will hold out. It's just that the large numbers of hospitalizations and deaths that the CDC report is reporting to America right now is really concerning. I mean, I, I, I just think that these numbers uh, cannot be sugarcoated in terms of what the CDC is telling uh, America right now. And I, I think it's, uh, it's very important to, to, for your listeners to hear these numbers. This isn't my opinion. This is CDC right. numbers. That's important too, because a lot of people are shooting down opinions right now. <laughs> not my opinion. Let me read to you. This is what the CDC is telling Americans uh, through October 12, 2021. This is staggering. There are now 31,895, 31,895 Americans fully vaccinated by every strict criterion of the CDC. One shot, two shot, wait two weeks. As vaccinated as you can be, and they have... 31,895 Americans that have either died or been hospitalized. And of that fraction, 23% are fatalities and 85% and 67% respectively of deaths and hospitalizations are occurring in those over 65. This is a massive number. This is, you know, you know, the hospital, the new hospital admissions for COVID at the peak per day is about 15,000 in the United States. It goes down to about 5,000 or so. And uh, the hospitals don't have any way of really accounting for who's been vaccinated or not. People get put into um, isolation rooms and they've created this talking point that it's a 99% unvaccinated. But the CMS tells us something different. CMS, Medicare, Medicaid services. These are CMS data I'm reading to you through the first week of August. Okay. Uh, okay. We have data here. They have 161,000 breakthrough cases through the vaccine, 161,000. They have 33,000 breakthrough hospitalizations. So in these, the ones reported to the CDC is just sporadic reporting through community health. So I'm telling you right now, the CDC does not have the entire deck of cards here. They're only seeing a fraction of these deaths and hospitalizations. So, you know, I still hope because so many people took the vaccine and I want to be a hopeful doctor that the vaccines are doing something. People in my family took the vaccines. I hope that they are protected against hospitalization and death. But the CDC is telling us in large numbers, the vaccines are failing. Yeah. And I know you have to go. I could talk to you for four more hours, but uh, I'm going to let you go because I promised you it'd only be an hour. I appreciate your time. Is there any takeaways before we sign off? I would say at this point in time, vaccinated or unvaccinated, um, I am telling America, no prejudices are going to be allowed. No vaccine discrimination. Let's not discriminate against 100%. somebody who took the vaccine, who did not take the vaccine. They made their choices and they're going to live with their choices. If someone has a vaccine injury, I don't want to see any discrimination against a vaccine injury. I don't want to see doctors blowing off a vaccine injury. Someone takes a vaccine and gets a blood clot, report it because it's real. Someone who uh, deferred on the vaccine gets submitted with COVID. They don't need to be penalized for that or have any pejorative statements, no vitriol. I don't want to see another ICU director try to report their statistics based on who's been vaccinated and who's not. It doesn't matter because the vaccines don't work fully in people. People have made a choice. The vaccines must remain a personal choice. In no way, shape, or form can anybody receive any pressure, coercion, or threats of reprisal. That means right now I'm telling America with authority to drop the vaccine mandates immediately drop them. They're unethical, they're illegal, and from a clinical and civil perspective, they are they're basically going to be prosecutable. Uh, that the vaccine mandates will lead to harm, and they will lead to harm 
that's going to be subject to liability claims. 100%. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough, for your time. Uh, I would encourage everybody listening to uh, continue to search out this man's name uh, because he's on the cutting edge of, of this research and uh, giving us the latest on a regular basis. Thank you for your time and efforts on the behalf of the American public. Thank you. So that was Dr. Peter McCullough. I have to tell you, this guy is incredibly busy. He's in demand like crazy. He was just wrapping up a very quick snack before we started talking. He was gracious enough to give me an hour of his time. And it's not because he considers himself to be some, you know, knight in shining armor or a beacon on the hill, even though to some degree he is both. It's simply because he's just in demand. And he told me at the Your Health Freedom Symposium, Jared, I don't say no to anybody that wants to get this message out. And I so greatly respect him for that. He mentioned a couple of things that we didn't get into great detail on. Uh, the protocol for uh, nutraceuticals, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, quercetin as an alternative to ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine zinc, and some of those things. If you have questions about those things, you need more information, I'd be happy to answer those questions at Vitality. You can call us at 801-292-6662. He also discussed uh, briefly, briefly uh, using food-grade hydrogen peroxide uh, as a way to cleanse the mouth and the nose as opposed to iodine, if you have a concern with the iodine, or if you're pregnant or nursing or have a thyroid issue and, and don't want uh, uh, to use the uh, iodine. I will say my opinion, uh, so I'm not speaking for Dr. McCullough, but the food-grade hydrogen peroxide works incredibly well. I think probably as well, if not better, than the iodine and doesn't come with the same potential issues that the iodine does, although using the iodine, as he suggested, I don't think it's necessarily a, a bad move either. The point of the matter is, as he said, this isn't a hand infection. Uh, it is a respiratory thing. So the nose and the mouth matter. So I would suggest looking into food-grade hydrogen peroxide, diluting it down very, very low. There's one in particular that's already at 3% instead of 35%. That's what I personally use and uh, did use when I was dealing with uh, these symptoms. And I used it in a nebulizer and had excellent success with it. But you can also use it as a preventative rinse. In fact, there's one that's an oral rinse by uh, called BR Rinse that I'm a really big fan of. It's a 1% solution of food-grade hydrogen peroxide. And you can use it to brush your teeth with. You can use it to gargle with. It's a fantastic option uh, to cleanse the mouth. I use it uh, morning and night. You can also uh, dilute down the pure food-grade hydrogen peroxide and put it, to, like I say, in a nebulizer uh, with some saline solution, or you can use it in conjunction with my favorite version of the neti pot, which is called Naso Pure. Uh, put it in there with their little salt packet to make a saline, add the food-grade hydrogen peroxide to the water, and use that to rinse the sinuses. I think that's a great idea. 
you know, once or twice a week uh, for sure. Just normally it's good for you. It's also fantastic if you deal with allergies. It works really well for that kind of thing. If you deal with any kind of chronic sinus or respiratory stuff, you can do it more. You can certainly do it daily if you would like to, uh, as uh, Dr. McCullough alluded to with the iodine. So there are some things that uh, we didn't get into great detail on, but I uh, wanted to just clarify some of those things. And uh, we will post the website for the protocol that he suggested. So you can go directly to that uh, in the the, uh, show description on your uh, podcast app. So uh, that'll be available for you as well. Okay, so I'm going to wrap this one up. Thank you so much for listening to me, for seeking out the podcast. Uh, We are being censored on the radio to some degree. I am grateful that uh, the uh, good people at 1280 and 97.5 have chosen not to remove me from the air and have told me just to uh, be a little quiet about some of these topics. And, you know, they basically have told me they don't, you know, agree or disagree just don't like taking the heat from the callers saying, hey, this guy's, you know, causing all kinds of problems on on your airwaves. So I've toned it down on radio, but I now have the podcast and I appreciate you finding this episode. I'd love for you to listen uh, on a regular basis to the podcast because as you'll notice, I'm doing a lot of specific episodes that are podcast only. I did Dr. Larry Pilevsky about a month ago. Highly recommend going back to that one. Dr. Andre, or not doctor, but Andre Angelantoni. I I am currently uh, scheduled to get Dr. Paul Thomas, and that'll also be a podcast only episode, which is going to be fantastic. Really, really love uh, that guy and and what he has to say. And I'll continue to seek out the best minds that uh, I can to bring to you more of this critical information in this critical time in our country. Thank you so much for listening to me. If you have any questions, call us at Vitality, 801-292-6662. It doesn't matter where you heard this or how you heard it or where you live. That phone number will work for you and we'll take care of you over the phone and answer the questions you have and send you anything you need through the mail, 801-292-6662. Thank you for listening to me. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been a special episode of Vitality Radio. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched, produced, and written by Jared St. Clair. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, Go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Vitality Radio. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast has not been evaluated by the FDA. This podcast is provided with the understanding that the information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a medical professional. Thank you.